I went back to my old school、um, a few years ago. Actually, they asked me to come back and give the prize-giving speech,、mm-hmm. and I talked a little bit about how some of the children in our care live very short lives. And I looked out at these bunch of sixteen to eighteen-year-old boys, and I said, "I hope that you will live to be old and grey one、yeah. day." When you are, you will be able to look any man in the eye and say, "I made a difference with my life.、Mm. I left the world a better place、mm. than I found it." And that's the acid test for all of us. You know, can we live a kind and useful life that leaves the world a better place than we found it? Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge. And I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the Revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So, if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. When it comes to leadership and compassion, Martin Edwards is the man to admire. As CEO of the wonderful children's hospice, Julius House, he's built a team and culture that helps improve the lives of seriously ill children and their families. From debating with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove to fundraising events with Guy Ritchie and Robert Downey Jr., Martin's thoughtfulness and determination in business and charity has helped raise millions for those in need. His story is uplifting, occasionally harrowing, but very, very inspiring. This is the eventful life of Mr. Martin Edwards. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Judge. Good to be here. Yeah, very good. Looking forward to this. I'm really intrigued. Really intrigued.、So、I want to roll all the way back, Martin. Where did you grow up, and how did you first get into the world of charity? I grew up in Oxfordshire.、Um, I'm the son and grandson of a of a country doctor, and、uh, I、um, I went to Oxford University、um, to study law, and at that time I wanted to be a lawyer, but I, I I saw a lot of extreme wealth at Oxford when I was there, and、um, I joined the debating society. And there, at the same time, just to give you an idea, Boris Johnson was was、uh, a regular speaker there. You、um, know, he was lots of fun to hear, but I didn't get the impression there was much substance underneath there.、Mm. I debated against Michael Gove,、um, and.、Um, I found him a really brutal debater, very, very effective. But he kind of enjoyed humiliating、um, the people he was debating against a bit too much. He didn't really lay a glove on me, but but he he did that to、yeah. some people. And、um, I, I just looked at these guys and I thought, I don't really want to be like you. And and at the same time, <laughs> there was、um, the、uh, the aftermath of the Ethiopian famine, the Live Aid famine. So what, you, what year are we talking in, Martin? So I was at、uh, university from eighty five to eighty eight. Yep.、Um, the the Band Aid record was Christmas nineteen eighty four, and Live Aid was summer of eighty five. Right. Okay. And I looked at the example of these pop stars who were really,、uh, as Sting said, giving something of themselves and not、yeah. just writing a check, and I thought. I can do something like that too, and at the time, the only people at university who were raising, well, supposedly raising money, were people who were just having a good time. Yeah, they were just organising fun events to just to have a good time、yeah. and raising hardly anything. And I thought, if we're serious about this, then let's really get serious.、Mm. So、um, I decided to try and run a hundred miles nonstop 
um, which uh, and then get sponsored going door to door around the whole university. And a couple of friends of mine uh, decided to fast for a whole week. And between us, we went all the way around the university knocking on doors. So I learned very early on what makes a good door to door salesman. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we called ourselves the university charity campaign, the official university charity campaign. There was no such thing, but yeah. it, was, it was a good line. Yeah. And it started the conversations. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I trained really, really hard for this thing. Of course, it didn't cost a penny to put on. So everything we raised was profit. I trained so hard that at one point I was urinating blood. Um, I, ra- I, I ran a thousand miles over that summer holidays before before the run. Um, you know, I was doing a half marathon every day plus an hour and a half of really high intensity aerobic training. Um, and uh, I wish I could do it now. Mm. now how old? How old were you? In your I was early twenties. I was eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. And you, you wanted to run hundred miles nonstop. Yes, I thought it had to be so. So you're talking diff- four marathons, yeah, four marathons, nonstop, four marathons back to back. I thought it had to sound so difficult that it would really grab people mm. and get them to sponsor us. And it did work from that point of view. Um, I mean, we we raised in, in today's money equivalent about seventy five thousand pounds, wow. which is a lot going yeah, door to door. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I passed out after eighty three miles of the run. I'd been running for about fifteen hours by then, um, and and passed out at that point. So I didn't complete the distance. Um, but I think people took pity on me and they did cough up the sponsorship. Mm. And uh, and through that and some other fundraising at university, uh, we fully funded two uh, redevelopment projects in Ethiopia, two Oxfam projects mm. to get areas of the country back up and running. Fair play. Fair play to you. So what was your, what was your move after that then? You're at university. Did you then think, well, I actually want to get into this charity world and keep raising money? Or did you have another opportunity because you found your skills? Obviously, door-to-door teaches you a lot of skills. It does, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be very self-reliant. Mm. Uh, you've got to have huge amounts of um, resilience mm. to, to be able to do that because you'll get some knockbacks as mm. well. You're um, sure you get a, a lot of knockbacks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we were, you know, we were persuasive mm. and, and uh, you know, I got far more yeses than no's, mm. put it like that. But I, I realized I didn't, I didn't want to be a lawyer. That didn't hold any interest for me. But I, And I did want to be a charity worker for the rest of my life. But I wanted to get some skills first. Now, I'd obviously learned some skills by running that campaign. Yeah. But I, I went into marketing um, for uh, Procter & Gamble for a couple of years. But it was literally selling soap. So, you know, it, it was, it, <laughs> you know, it was marketing and advertising, yeah. but yeah. we were marketing and advertising soap. And I'm sure that we need soap manufacturers in this world, but it didn't float my boat. Mm. I did learn a lot of skills from that time, and I used that to go back into charity, but I wasn't motivated by it. And, you know, I I remember reading an article a few years ago when one of the first Russian oligarchs came to London, and it was about their their restaurant bill in some really fancy restaurant, and they'd spent £10,000 only on the bottle of wine. And I just thought, I I cannot understand that values set Mm. it just doesn't mean anything Mm. to me you know if we're going to be here for these few short years that we're on this planet Mm. let's make something of that time Mm. and and be useful Mm. um and all i've ever wanted to do is to try to leave the world a better place than i found it so i i went to i did the couple of years experience and then got a job at save the children and was there for six years and uh, went out to Ethiopia briefly during that time, and in fact saw some of the projects that that, that we had funded yeah, yeah. as as students, and they were and they were still going. And just to explain to the listener, what was Ethiopia like back in the time you were there? Um, it was 
comparatively lawless outside of the capital of Addis Ababa. So we did get shot at um, when we were driving around the country. Bullet holes appeared in, in, in the windscreen of the Toyota Land Cruiser that we were driving in. I'm very pleased with Toyota for making yeah. nice, nice thick windscreens <laughs> because otherwise we would have been killed that day. Yeah. Um, why, why do you think you were attacked that day? I think there is just a lawlessness um, in certain areas of, of certain countries all of the time. You, know, you don't have the system of government filtering through every town and yeah. every village. Uh, the span of control beyond the capital gets weaker and weaker. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it was a tremendous experience. And as I say, we, we saw projects that were, were flourishing, um, that were helping communities to get back on their feet. And uh, you know, irrigation projects, re replanting projects. Uh, transport to to transport grain to areas of the country which were uh, which were going through lean times, um, and uh, it was it was inspiring. So you know, in amongst the lawless, lawlessness, you also see pockets of good. Yeah. Um, but strangely, I was you know I was also a fundraiser for Save the Children during that time, and cheek by jowl with those kind of experiences it was staging royal events mm. or staging events with with mega celebrities mm. you know I, I probably organized about 15 royal events during that time princess anne was the uh the, still is the president of save yeah. the children and and she was tremendously knowledgeable and hard working and um royal events are probably twice the work of a normal event yeah. but they're worth it yeah, because course. they raise more than twice as much money yeah. people, and huge publicity for you yeah people want to be in a room yeah. with 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 people like princess anne and um, so, you know, you learn a lot from mm. staging events like that. Mm. And where, where were you putting those events on? So uh, we did many of them in London. We did a, a fancy dinner at the Natural History Museum, sat around the big dinosaur model, <laughs> um, which subsequently went on tour around the country a couple yep. of years ago. Dippy the Diplodocus. <laughs> um, we did an event uh, with Frank Bruno uh, at the, uh, the the Diet Coke Great Runs, as they were called. So they, there was a sort of half marathon in Portsmouth. Yep. He was lovely, Frank. Absolutely lovely wonderful. man, isn't he? Yeah, mm. brilliant. Um, and uh, but you know many of them were were in London, but we did some events in Birmingham. Um, we did uh, uh, a huge public park event in Birmingham as well. So all, all over really. Mm. And you were there for six years. Yes. And did you enjoy your time there? Yes, it was a very well well run charity, and it was a good grounding for me. Mm. Um, what sort of age were you then? Uh, well, you I was twenty two when I started there. Okay. I suppose, yeah. Okay. And um, I became the youngest ever regional manager of Save the Children at twenty six. And found myself managing people twice my age, yeah. some of whom didn't want to be managed yeah. by somebody half yeah, their age, sure. and you know that was that was a, a learning experience yeah. as well. Um, but uh, it was a great place to be. Mm. What was your next move after that from Save the Children at the age of twenty eight? So I went to work for a sporting charity, um, or was there for four years. Um, and uh, again, there was you know, a fair bit of events and celebrity work in there. The patrons there included um, Lawrence Delalio, Ryan Giggs, Desmond Lynham, um, lots of people like that. Yeah. And then I went to work for a, um, a charity that um, helps parents to learn about parenting. Um, uh, another national charity. And what was, a great idea that is. Parents yeah. to learn about parenting because we're not taught anything, are we? No. And, and you often only hear about parenting when something bad has gone wrong. wrong yeah. You know, when there's then the, the, the stick rather than the carrot, if yes. you like. And and uh, the the National Family and Parenting Institute, it was as it was called, um, was there to try to provide good free information to parents on anything from uh, schooling to smacking um, you know, positive parenting, as it's called, yeah. as an alternative to smacking. Yeah. 
um, and lots of free information and resources to help families uh, raise their children. Mm. And your movement from there? How many years were you there for? So I was there for uh, two years, and then I uh, went to, and then I went into the hospice world. So I moved up to the north of Scotland, to the Highlands. Really? Yeah. From there. where? Uh, from London all the way to Inverness, um, and I was living in Inverness for four years. Beautiful part of the world. Is it? Okay. And uh, my role there was um, director of fundraising for the adult hospice, the Highland Hospice, mm. and um, travelling all over the Highlands, right up to John O'Groats. Um, and uh, we uh, we became one of the most effective hospices in the country and um, uh, raised a lot of money from the public and brought in new medical positions um, to enhance the, the, the medical skills um, that the patients could receive. It, it was a really good four years. Mm. What made you choose to go from London all the way to Inverness? It was a lifestyle change. Yeah, okay. um, you know, I think London is great when you're young. But it's also a very impersonal, friend, yes. unfriendly place. Yeah. And, you know, by contrast, everybody knows everybody else in those small communities yeah. in, in the Highlands. And I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I worked with up mm. there. So from the Highlands, what was your next step for you? So then I, well, I wanted to be a chief executive because ultimately, if you want to shape a charity, that's the best position to do it from. And uh, and I applied, the very first role I applied for um, I, as a chief executive, I, I got, which was Julia's house. And that was 16 years ago. So I moved all the way down to Dorset. I think they were probably so impressed that I'd managed to travel all the way from Inverness for the interview. <laughs> Straight back down to They Baltimore. didn't bother to ask me any questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when can you start? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, sh I showed some effort there. Um, I remember the, the then chairman saying um, uh, he was really impressed that I leant forward in the interview. I leant forward mm. onto the table to sort of in engage with them. And it was only years afterwards I told him I actually had an ear infection and could hardly could hear a word that he was saying. <laughs> but, you know, a bit of luck went yeah, my way. Absolutely. And, and that was 16 years ago. And I, I never envisaged that I would stay in a cause for as long as I have. But I have loved it. You know, I have laughed. I have cried. Um, we've built a, an extraordinary team of people. There's something about children's palliative care that really gets under your skin. Mm. Um, you're getting to know these children really quite well because although some of them can live very short lives, others will live for many years and into adulthood with their conditions. So you're, you're, you're looking after them on a weekly basis throughout their childhood and getting to know them very well. And children want to have fun right up until the end. That's the thing. Yeah. It, it is our job to help them to have fun. So people assume that a, a children's hospice must be a terribly miserable place. But if it was, children wouldn't come there often for respite stays yes. um, because they pick up on that vibe straight away. So every day is full of fun and laughter and has to feel different. Mm. But of course, there are tragic days as well. And that also gets under your skin. Mm. You know, if you see uh, a two-year-old child um, who's three foot long in a bed still and cold and all the life is gone then you know beyond doubt that life is not fair and somehow you have to as a group of, of nurses and carers and managers you have to pick yourselves up off the floor and be professional in supporting that family through what they're going through and be able and resilient enough to do it again and again and mm. again so you, you, you get these, these this sort of tremendous fun and enjoyment, but also great tragedy as well. And it's our job to be resilient through all of that and to look after each other through all of that. And that's one of the things I've really tried to do in Julia's House, to create a culture 
which is emotionally literate, where mm. we look after each other, where we recognize the stresses that we're going through. And we look out for who needs an arm around the shoulder and how to support each other so that you can actually keep people with you. And you, you engender a, a huge sense of, of, of loyalty and togetherness. When did Julia's house first start and how was it created? So it was the brainchild of a nurse called Julia. And uh, she was already suffering from terminal cancer and experienced the care of an adult hospice and, and realized she was a children's nurse and she realized that the children that she used to look after could benefit from something much better. And so she had the idea of creating a hospice. Um, but she passed away within a few months and it was her good friend, Mike Wise, who took it on and told her before she died that he would name it after Brilliant. her, which was a particularly Brilliant. selfless thing to Absolutely. do. Absolutely, Mike is our founder, but he's now sadly passed away. He passed away aged 84, um, 18 months ago. But um, he, he was our founder, um, but it is named after Julia, the nurse, whose, whose inspiration we, we still carry. A wonderful story. What year was this? So she had the idea in 97 and there was six years of fundraising um, before the charity started its first care through its first nurses in 2003. So um, Julia's house in Dorset will be 20 years old next year. Brilliant. And you've been there 16 of them. Yes, that's right. Wow. So it was quite a small charity when I when I joined. When you say a small charity, do you mean a small charity in terms of the number of full-time staff within Julia's house, the actual operation? And how has the operation grown from the 16 years you've been there to, to where you are today? How many hospices are there? How many full-time staff and carers, et cetera? So when I started, we only had community care and we had ambitions to uh, to design and build our first hospice for Dorset. And my first job Job number one in the intray was, can you build us the hospice, please? Now, I'd had no experience at all of <laughs> construction projects. Yeah. So it was a learning experience, mm. so we politely say. Um, and of course, it went over budgets and, you know, it took it took longer than it planned. But we did create a really beautiful environment. That's the thing I, I really want. When, when we create a hospice environment, and we have two now, one in Dorset, one in Wiltshire, I want any child to just go, wow, at, at three or four points in the building. Yeah. Now, they might be different for a three-year-old or for a 16-year-old yeah. or for a child with with excellent sensory abilities or a child with significant sensory impairment. Mm. So depending on who you are, you have to have different things to stimulate them. But I really want that, that child to go, wow, and for it to feel homely and not clinical. Mm. It mustn't feel like a hospital because mm. these children spend a lot of their lives in hospital and they learn to dislike that. Time. Yeah. So we really need it to feel fun and and homely. Mm. So we opened the first Dorset, the Dorset Hospice and gradually grew the charity and uh, did more and more community care and employed more and more nurses. You know, when I joined, we had two nurses. Um, we, we've now got more than 30. Full-time nurses. Um, most of them are, are, are part-time, yeah. but we have a, a lot of carers and therapists as well and fam Wonderful. family support workers as well. Because the thing you appreciate when you follow these families' stories over time is that it's not just the child it's, who's affected, it's the parents who yes. are exhausted yeah. because they're looking after a child who needs round-the-clock care. Yeah. It's the brothers and sisters who don't get as much time from yeah. mum and dad. And, and you see all sorts of uh, damage that, yeah. that could occur um, you know, if you look elsewhere in the country at families that aren't receiving this kind of regular respite support, mothers of seriously ill children are 60% more likely to die young than mothers of healthy children. 
Due to stress. Due to stress. So they're twice as likely to develop a heart condition or a serious mental illness and 60% more likely to die wow. young. That's been shown in a huge national study. Wow. And this is why you need you need respite for yeah. these families. It's, yeah. You know, end of life care is very, very important. But if the child lives to be 16, what about the other 16 years of their life yeah. and the impact that has on the family? Mm. So this is what hospice care has, has become. Mm. So we, we built out the Dorset service and then uh, seven or eight years ago, I just felt that we could do more, that we had the, the capability to do more. So we analyzed all of the surrounding counties and looked at what services were there and where the gaps were. And it was very clear that children in Wiltshire did not have these kinds of services. They didn't have significant community care at home and there wasn't a local hospice. You had to leave the county in order to access the next, the nearest hospice. Yeah. So uh, I recommended to our to our board that we create a Wiltshire Children's Hospice. And they said, well, if you can raise the money. And at that point, I knew it was going to happen. It was just a question of how long yes. it would take. And uh, through various means, we, we won a national award. In 2012, we were the, the UK Healthcare Charity of the Year. And the profile that we got from that award and the couple of people that we met as a result introduced us to Samantha Cameron when David Cameron was Prime Minister. Yeah. And Samantha Cameron agreed to host a charity reception for us in 10 Downing Street. And that proved to be the um, the attraction for a few new people to engage in the charity. And one of the people who came to that reception was Guy Ritchie. Now, Guy lives on the on the Dorset-Wiltshire border. Yeah. Perfect situation. Mm. And uh, I got to meet Guy a few times after that event and, and essentially put the plan to him. I said, you know, this is what we've done in Dorset. And he came and came and looked at it. And I said, let's let's build one for Wiltshire. And he really put his shoulder to the wheel big time and helped us fundraise. So he staged an event in his back garden for 100 friends and they raised just shy of a million pounds. You're joking, mate. Yeah, and one, one, of the guy, one of the guests there was David Beckham. Uh, another one was Robert Downey Jr., who Guy had direct, wow. directed in the two <laughs> Sherlock Holmes movies. And uh, Guy uh, got talking to Robert at the event and they came up with another fundraising idea. I, I, I met Robert briefly at that event as well and very quickly found myself surrounded by a crowd of adoring people. Mm. They were adoring Robert, not me, just to mm. clarify any <laughs> confusion in your mind. Um, and uh, But Guy um, persuaded Robert to auction off a chance to meet him at the world premiere of the Avengers Age of Ultron film which was the second mm. big Avengers film. Mm. And uh, it was it was uh, $10 a ticket and people from all over the world bought tickets mm. for this. And it raised $2 million. And um, somebody from, uh, I think somebody from San Francisco won the prize. Um, and uh, so um, between Guy's £1 million and Robert's $2 million, mm. we'd raised most of the money we needed for the new hospice. Wonderful. Yeah. What a lovely story. And then, of course, when you've got these guys mm. on board, you better get on with finding somewhere and building it and open quickly. It. You don't want to go back <laughs> yeah. to them and say five years later, I'm sorry, we're still looking. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, that, that you know, we, we then got on with it. Yeah. And um, again, thinking of that wow moment for children, um, I, I contacted uh, Robert's people, Team Downey, as they're called, <laughs> um, and, and said, is there any chance we could get a replica Iron Man helmet for the hospice? <laughs> and... 
a few weeks later in the post arrived a replica Iron Man <laughs> helmet, and that, that is on display at the, the Wiltshire Hospice. Fantastic. What a lovely story. So 2012, that was the point when you were like, right, we need to get, we need to crank this up a notch. A couple of conversations and look what you created. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you have you to- You and your team. You have to show complete and utter respect for the the time of these people for the, and uh, for how much time they've got. And you have to be very, very focused in those conversations. But uh, but they were both very altruistic. Mm. And, you know, we talk about the kind of people that, that, that don't have those kind of values that mm. I reacted against when I was younger. Yeah. And, and here were two guys that definitely yeah. did. And uh, of course, they know people that, that we don't know. Yeah. And they were able to put some rocket fuel into yeah. our appeal. Wonderful. And what was the journey like from that 2012 when the, you had that event where you, they raised the money to took roughly two and a half million pounds or two, two, or whatever it may be? How much of that did it, how much did it cost to create that hospice in Wiltshire? So we, we had the event at Downing Street in uh, 2012 yeah. and uh, Guy's event was 2014. Yeah, okay. Robert's fundraising was at the beginning of 2015. Yeah. And, uh, by uh, summer of 2017, we had uh, designed and opened, built the, the Wiltshire Hospice. So it's now been open nearly five years. Lovely. And how much did that cost? Uh, it was a three million pound build. So it was a, a fairly small build. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's not an aircraft hangar. That, yeah. that's a, that's a, but again, if you're creating a homely environment, yeah. you, you don't want a massive space that mm. feels soulless. Um, and uh, then your challenge is to raise the ongoing funds for all the nurses and carers yeah. that will work there. Yeah. Um, so then you have to generate the, the public support yeah. beyond that. But I'm, I'm so pleased we did it because every time I've met uh, a, fa a family from Wiltshire and talked to them about what difference this has made to them, I know that it was worth those Absolutely. extra sweat and blood and tears absolutely and on the business side of things you've obviously put three million pound into the hospice how much does it cost you a year to run the dorset hospice how much does it cost you a year to run the wiltshire hospice to know what your break even is to say right now we need to really raise even more money into the kitty to help these young children yeah so our, our turnover as a charity is eight million a year Across the both? Yes, because the, it's a very time intensive business. Yeah. You, you've got to have a certain number of nurses and carers with each child yes. because of the vulnerabilities of their condition. Um, so that that's our turnover goal. And in healthcare, you see- all is, that your, is that your turnover goal to break even to then raise that's, uh, as much as you can on top of that? That, that, that includes the cost of generating the funds as yeah. well as the cost of yes. the care. Okay. Yeah. And you cannot scrimp on the the staffing that you have to look after children with such vulnerabilities mm. because in, in in healthcare you see i was listening to in the car on the radio on 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 the way over here today mm. to the report into the Telford and Shrewsbury maternity scandal mm. where a number of children died through through neglect yeah. through through poor management and Every so every few years, there is a scandal in healthcare, and, it, and it, the reasons are always the same. You know, disconnected management, refusing to listen, refusing to acknowledge the importance of quality over everything else. Yeah. Um, and and a big part of my job is is making sure that those sorts of things could never happen here mm. because we're listening to the experiences of patients and their families. Mm. You know, we have we have two to uh, parents of, of children on our board at all times to make sure that voice is heard and uh, to to make sure that we really not only employ enough nurses and yeah. carers but look after them fantastically well yeah. 
we, we take part in something called the Best Companies Scheme, which is the, the best places to work for. It's a staff survey. Yeah. So every year you get responses from your staff about how you can improve any aspect of the yeah. organization. But there's also a ranking. And mm. we've been in the top 100 UK employers to work for for 13 years running. Wonderful. And in one year we were actually first in that ranking. And that, that comes from the top down. Patient, patiently, yeah. patient, I, I never talk about top down mm. actually because, because I always, one of the first things I did on. on but you're my, leading the way, surely. I, I am, but that, but, that but, filters but, down to but, everyone. But you, you, you have to try to make sure that you have a, a sort of flat structure, if yes. you like. So yeah. on day one, when you join an organization, you get presented with an organization chart, don't you? And, the, and there's the chairman and the chief executive mm. and the mid, senior mm. managers, middle managers, mm. junior. You know, who, how does that make people feel at mm. the bottom? Mm. So the very first day in the charity, I asked for that organizational chart to be turned around. Yeah. So it leads from left to right. Yeah, brilliant. And um, it, it's about patiently listening to your staff, putting in places, putting in place things that will support them. So we have a 24-7 confidential counseling helpline for all of our staff every day of night of the year. We put that in place 15 years ago, yeah. long before people were talking about mental health yes. in the way they do, thankfully now. Mm. And, you know, gradually you put these things in place and you get that chain reaction yeah. of, of really high performance mm. and hopefully retaining those stars mm. as well. How many children are there in the Dorset Hospice and how many are in the Wiltshire Hospice? So we've got about 110 families in Dorset. And uh, at the moment we've got uh, about 45 families in Wiltshire. And I talk about families because we're, we're supporting every family member and not just the child. And that includes the family after their child has died. So mm. we will support a family for up to five years if needed, but more commonly three years after the, the death of their child. Wow. And what you learn is that the experience of every family in grief is different. Yeah. And every member of that family is different. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong. Yeah. Everybody grieves differently. It's not a linear thing. Yeah. You don't go through each stage in 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 sequence. Yeah. And never go back to, you know, it, you can kind of loop back to an earlier stage in yeah. grief. And you have to be there and understand that and never judge them mm. through through that process. Do you, do, from your experience, have you found like the word grief, you can go through, some people go through grief knowing their child is going to die. And is there is there, some people carry on grief afterwards. Is there, is, does it ever stop when they know that it's come to an end? I think that... First of all, a family begins to grieve for the healthy child that they don't have or yes. no longer have yeah. if their child used to be healthy and yeah. then become unwell. Some of them are born with, with genetic conditions, which yeah. means they, they were never fully healthy. Yeah. There is a stage of, of, of adjustment. It's a kind of grief in the months and years before a child dies. But of course, it does go on for, for forever afterwards. I, mm. I, I actually think the world changes forever for somebody who loses anyone that's really close to them, it doesn't have to be a child. Yeah. The world is never the same. Yeah. You know, you, you've, you've talked very movingly about your mother. Mm. The world is never the same after somebody like that yes. has gone. But I say to all the families when we have our annual memorial day, that that child's light, though it did not shine long, still illuminates our world to yes. this day. Yeah. Because we remember them, because we loved them, because they loved us, and all of those loving relationships, they are still there. You know, that, that, and, and, and similarly, you can't turn your sadness and mm. your grief off at any mm. point. Though that's still there as well. It just gets to a point where you can 
finally put it in proportion with the other things in okay. your life and get on with the rest of your life. Yeah. Do you know every kid's name in both hospices? Um, I wish I did, but we're a little too big for yes, that now. Okay. We're a little too big for that now. Um, but uh, at various points, I will meet most or all of the families. Yeah. Yes. And how is that for you personally, taking on the grief and taking the, on that emotion, knowing that you've been attached to that young child or their family and you know what's about to happen? Well, the people who experience it most are the frontline nurses and carers okay. um, who are going into the child's home on a weekly basis to look after that child mm. and give mum or dad a break. Um, but but we all feel it. And I think the day that you don't feel it is the day that you should quit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with, with passion with any job. Yeah. Um, you know, as Eddie Hearn says, no passion, no point. No point yeah. if, if you don't feel that, then you should walk away. Mm. Um, so I don't believe in, in the idea of a sort of technocratic manager who, who's sort of administratively perfect, but, but doesn't feel it. Yeah. I think you, you will go through times when you feel drained and emotionally exhausted. Mm. And, you know, I could tell you right now about the stories of some of the children and I would be crying within 30 seconds. Mm. Uh, because we knew those children, and we mm. knew uh, we knew what they went through. Mm. You know, some of the saddest examples I think are the mm. the teenagers with cancer who are old enough to know exactly what they're going through and exactly how much they're about to lose. Wow! Um, and we've seen some very small children with very very painful conditions um, that have caused them daily pain throughout their short lives. Um, so, you know, of course, we, we experience a little bit of the challenges that they experience. It's not the same because we're not going through that, but we have empathy. Mm. And, and we, we certainly see the stresses and strains that the mums and dads mm. go through and the brothers and sisters. And this is why we try to give them outlets too. Yeah. yeah. What's your day to day like? It's very, very varied. I was just about to yeah. glad um, you said that. You know, one moment you can be talking to a parent who, whose child is about to be rushed into hospital yeah. or who has just lost their child. Um, the next moment you can be talking about a website design or planning event, an event where um, you know, you're, you're trying to get somebody, an A-lister there who might be a draw for that event. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the next moment you're you're talking about well how can we solve the crisis of nurse recruitment you know because there is a national yeah. shortage of nurses in this country and how can we make sure that we're the best recruiter of nurses mm. and that we retain them as, as best we can mm. um, because you, you don't want a, a constant revolving door of unfamiliar faces looking after the child each week they they, they do form bonds mm. and you want familiar people who will stay mm. with you so it, it's tremendously varied and i think that's what keeps me fresh yeah you know 16 years into the job i could have got complacent yeah. we could have got complacent as an organization and i think what keeps you going is is a hunger and a perfectionism you know i i never feel satisfied that we've done anything well enough i always feel we could do something better yes, yeah. and that's what drives you to constantly ask questions. Yeah. I, I think of a, a chief executive's role, not as a CEO, but as a CAO, mm. a chief agitating officer. Mm. So it is my role <laughs> to agitate for improvement yes. across the whole organization and for the other managers to do that as well, mm. hopefully. 
And that means constantly teasing away at questions. Of, well, yeah. how do we know that? How are yeah. we sure about that? Where's the evidence for that? How can we make sure we do it even better next yeah. time? And, and just keeping everybody curiosity. on their toes, if you like. Mm. Yeah, curiosity for life mm. is one of the great driving Absolutely. factors that, that, that keeps us going. Mm. What's your main event? Do you have a main event a year? Or do you have a few events? We used to before COVID. Yes. Obviously, everything Let's changed. Let's not mention that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything changed in yeah. public fundraising at that point. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure yet there's yet an appetite for big indoor events. Um, and, and of course, you know, if, if we're, we have to be a little bit more risk averse with the charity's funds when we're putting events on. Yeah. We can't afford to, to lose big on, on yeah. some of those events. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it does change, but the the outdoor treks and activities, um, and you know, I've done sponsored fitness challenges and things like that. Hundred miles? Well, that one, yeah, that was a long <laughs> time ago. But uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. I, I challenged Eddie Howe um, to a fitness challenge, um, and we got a bunch of business people to join us on it as well, uh, which was to do a, a two hour insanity workout marathon. Oh so wow! The insanity workout That's intense, by Sean it? T is is absolutely yes. named, yeah, because you do have to be yeah. quite mad to take yeah. it on, and it's meant to be a thirty minute hit. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, let's let's try and do two hours of this. And I I just kind of dropped it into the conversation with Eddie and said, "Is there any?" Because he's he's one of our patrons. He was at the Bournemouth manager at the time yes, before he's gone right. to Newcastle. Correct. Okay. He's, he's still our patron yep. now. He's a yep. lovely, lovely yep. guy. Um, and I, I dropped it in and said, "I'm I'm thinking of doing this. Do you fancy doing it yourself?" And he <laughs> said, "Yeah, go on then." And um, and so that then catapulted us into a winter of training before a, a March event. Uh, the only challenge of which is that his preferred workout time was 6 a.m. And uh, scraping the ice off the car yeah. at like 4.30 <laughs> in the morning to drive over to Bournemouth to not only be in a workout, but to lead it as yeah. well, because I was training the other yeah. guys to do it. That was that was hard. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was also great. You know, you do bond with people mm, when you're in absolutely. a collective endeavor like that. Mm. So challenges uh, continue to be a big a big thing, and particularly the outdoor ones. They're not yeah. they're not too affected by COVID. Now, we were very lucky. We we got that. We scheduled it some months away, and it happened to be five days before the first lockdown. Yeah. Otherwise, so it, if it had been a week later, it would March have been the 18th, roughly. Yes, correct. 2020. It was exactly March the was 18th, it? 2020. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. That's right. I remember yeah. those times very well, losing yeah. Bournemouth Sevens that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we squeaked in with five days to spare. Good for you. And we raised £63,000. Wow, good for you. So what? Just, just rolling back in that years, those last two years, how did you get through that period financially of the pandemic stroke COVID? Well, half of your fundraising closes overnight yep. and all of your charity shops close overnight. You can still privately fundraise yep. from benefactors. Mm. And and thankfully, people remembered us in their wills from years gone by. And so we could continue to get legacy income. Um, but the, the biggest challenge was actually infection control. It, it, it's, it's how can we keep these children alive? Because they all had that phrase, underlying health conditions. Yes. Do you remember that from yes. early in the pandemic? They yeah. all had very substantial underlying health mm. conditions and they were highly susceptible to an infection mm. like that. So we, we had to... Uh, we with their parents, we worked out a plan of, of keeping all of the children separate. They could no longer meet as groups during those two years. Mm. But we, we so we we basically increased the community care, the care at home, and uh, you know we had to try and get supplies of PPE from anywhere in the world in that in those first mm. uh, frantic early stages mm. before we eventually got got linked into the NHS supply mm. of PPE. 
And then your nurses and carers get vaccinated. And we, we made sure that they were in near the front of the queue with NHS staff as well. And so gradually your, your, your service becomes safer and safer and safer. Yeah. But that was the overwhelming priority yeah. um, because, you know, every, every child, every day matters. Yeah. And we have to make sure that they can live as long as life as they're fully able to and gets the most out of every single day. Yeah. But it was so hard for them because those families isolated for much longer than the general population. I can think of one family <clears> where <throat> the dad was a, a, he was a delivery driver. So mm. he, he was a key worker. Mm. So he, he kept on working, but he was and therefore interacting with, with the public during the lockdowns. But he was so keen to keep his daughter safe that he slept in a shed at the bottom of the garden and just waved at her through the glass yeah. window. And that was the contact that he had with his daughter wow. throughout all of How those heartbreaking weeks. heartbreaking that must yeah, have been. Incredibly hard. Mm. But that's what key workers do. They keep mm. going. Just a, you, you touched on nurses. I'm intrigued. You're saying there's a, obviously a lot of a shortage of nurses. Why would you say that? I think because there hasn't been enough long-term workforce planning by, mm. by government. Um, and uh, a few years ago, the government switched off the supply of nursing bursaries. So they no longer had bursaries to go to university and study nursing. And what, lo and behold, what happened was that fewer people enrolled on nursing courses. Absolutely. You know, and not- the prices of universities jumped threefold from yeah. nine grand to £27,000 as a three-year degree these days. They have they have uh, restarted those because I think they realised that, that, you know, that was a very obvious mistake. Yeah. Um, but of course, it led to a, a, a bottleneck. Mm. So that you know, we we do not have enough um, clinicians throughout the country in all different roles, mm. and that can only come through a long term investment in training new people. And is that taking place anywhere? Um, is, you'd, have any to, online... you'd have to ask the health secretary that. Mm. Yeah, um, I would have liked to ask the health secretary that. Um, he was another one I was at university with, actually, Jeremy Hunt. He was health secretary for six years. Mm. Um, no longer is now, um, but I would have liked to have asked him that. You know, how serious are your plans for yeah. investing in the long term future? Yeah. They usually say we've we've trained we've trained another ten thousand new nurses or twenty thousand therapists. What, what they don't say is how many people have retired during that time. Right. Okay. As well. So it's Robin Peters pay poor. Okay. Bit, yeah, it's massaging the, yeah. the, the data the numbers. a little bit. Yeah. What was Boris like at university? Well, I didn't know him personally, but I heard him speak many times mm. um, as a debater. And, and he was already, he already knew where he was going. He wanted to be famous. He was very charismatic as a speaker, very funny. Mm. He could hold the audience in okay. the palm of his hand. Yeah. There wasn't much substance. Yeah. It was show. Mm. Um, but he clearly had star quality. Mm. And uh, Michael Gove was a brilliant debater as, as okay. well. And a lot of those guys, they, they, they turn up, I find this really strange, they turn up age 18 or 19 at university already knowing that they want to be in the cabinet, yeah. which must be a product of their, their upbringing in, yeah. in, in, in some way. You know, most of us at that age are still figuring out what we want to be. <laughs> Where we go and party in next. <laughs> and, and, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and the, these guys were almost sort of fully formed yeah. in, in their ambitions. And in a way, it's a little bit sad. Mm. Because you haven't really thought about what, what? you really want to do mm. with your life. So over the years, Martin, tell me about the patrons you've had on board. Our first ever patron was Harry Redknapp, and he's still our patron now. And this is when nobody had heard of Dubious House, and he really helped us get on the map and, and get some local coverage. And he, he still does plenty of events now. He's a lovely, lovely guy, He's Harry. a top man, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, and Sandra mm. is lovely too. Yeah. And uh, Martin Clunes is another one of our 
very well-known patrons. And again, he's been involved for many years and does a number of things sort of quietly behind the scenes as oh, well, not, not necessarily publicity yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, a lovely, lovely guy. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, you see the best of people in those kind yeah. of situations. They're, they're doing it because they want to and because they care about the cause. Yeah. Fantastic. So what's the moving forwards now then? So these last couple of years have been pretty uh, pretty full on for you, I'd imagine, with a lot of pressure, financial pressure, and trying to keep your team together and at the same time trying to protect the children and their families. What's the future looking like for Julia's house right now? Well, we would certainly like to continue to help every child that is referred to us. So the numbers of children referred generally creeps up year on year yeah. as we as we get better known yeah. and as the medical community understands what we can do to support these mm. families that you know it's not just an end of life care service it's a whole life service mm. and a whole family service mm. um, and can we keep pace with that that will be a question of funds and recruitment yeah. that's the big challenge for us yeah. but beyond that uh, we, we've also been campaigning for parents of disabled children as a whole because we've seen what exhaustion does to these families. Yes. And so um, I've been part of a coalition uh, to try to get more respite care for these families and trying to lobby government for an improvement in, 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 the, in the provision of respite because it prevents families from, in some cases, splitting up yeah. or having mental breakdowns. Yeah. So let's get in there with an early yeah. prevention rather yeah. than with a crisis package after things are broken. Yeah, I've really, really enjoyed this chat, Martin. Thank you. Really so Yeah, it's been really, really interesting to hear your story and all the good that you're doing for Julia's house and everything you've done over your career. I went back to my old school um, a few years ago, actually. They asked me to come back and give the prize-giving speech, mm. which was quite rare because, you know, that usually they'd ask a top lawyer or, mm. a, I don't know, a top <laughs> policeman or something yeah. like that, or a, a general. But they asked me, a charity worker. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I really enjoy either mentoring or speaking to teenagers yes. at, that, at that sort of crossroads points yeah. in their career. Yeah. And I talked a little bit about how some of the children in our care live very short lives. And I looked out at these bunch of 16 to 18 year old boys and I said, I hope that you will live to be old and gray one yeah. day. And that when you are, you will be able to look any man in the eye and say, I made a difference with my life. Mm. I left the world a better place mm. than I found it. And that's the acid test for all of us. You know, can we live a kind and useful life that leaves the world a better place than we found it? Martin, and you've certainly done that. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you very much, Dodge. You're a good man. Mm -hmm.